This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. I'd like to thank Partner Hero for sponsoring this episode. The world over, outsourcing can get a pretty bad reputation, seen to be exploitative and providing low quality service. That's why Partner Hero's values-based approach raises the bar for the outsourcing industry by investing in employee empowerment and career growth, paying above average market salaries and maintaining a focus on quality and performance. Offering flexible terms and the ability to scale quickly, which is perfect for startups, quality assurance is baked into every programme. Also with offices around the world, so Partner Hero can offer a truly global coverage, including onshore, nearshore and offshore options. I know right now in the UFO community, we are all waiting for a delayed report that we feel a certain organisation could certainly benefit from Partner Hero's assistance. I myself worked for outsourced companies growing up and had wildly differing experiences facing many of the challenges that outsourced work brings. That's why Partner Hero's ethics and value-based approach really appeal to me and will to anyone looking to scale up their fast-growing business. So, if you are ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, check out Partner Hero. Head on over to partnerhero.com forward slash that UFO to book a free consultation with their solutions team. Mention you heard about Partner Hero from That UFO podcast and they'll waive the setup fee. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. I almost forgot the name of it there for a second. I shouldn't read and speak at the same time. It's a bit of an end of year breakdown and joining me for it as always to provide his expert analysis. That's his own words. I've got Dan. Dan, welcome back. Hello, hello. That was my own words actually reading a review that you wrote for me. So, you know, technically it was... Uh. But I never wrote it. I uh, I checked it for copy, didn't I? Just to check the spelling was okay. <laughs> but yeah, I think I've done it all right. Um, listen, I'm as you said earlier before we hit record. I'm glad we delayed this one a few days because a few things have actually happened regarding that. What we were going to lead with was a bit of a very short recap on the NDAA passing, which we talked about previously on a breaking news podcast. It's been the kind of main story on on the UFO social medias that the National Defence Authorisation Act bill, which is largely, you know, warmongering and other stuff, um, did have a section for UFO, UAP language that was going to pass. It has now officially been passed and it will basically get put into law in the coming days um, if, if past actions and acts are anything to go by. However, there was a, a bit of a kerfuffle, to use a classic British phrase in the last couple of days. And um, the DOD had uh well are we calling it i've seen it called a media roundtable a conference call you know um i'm not too sure what to actually call it dan was what would you say they had media q and a I, I would say this was the one time where using the word briefing was was absolutely on point uh i would say a phone telephone briefing yeah and what they done was invite a selection of journalists from different outlets including uh chris sharp from Liberation Times was there, you had John Greenwald from the Black Vault was there, and some others that people may or may not know their names. So Ross Coulthart commented on this, and I'm just going to start with this actually, Dan, because we've kept this format pretty close, haven't we, for updates, but I found this the most entertaining, at least, update of of all of them, that Ross Coulthart mentioned that, um, so off the back of StanfordBetter.org, they had mentioned that the DOD, And I'll just quote, actually, our official sources on Capitol Hill just confirmed that as of the end of business today, 
Uh, that was a couple of days ago now, so middle of December. None of the congressional committees have received the Pentagon's classified report on UAPs, UFOs, that was due October 31st. So Capitol Hill have said, yeah, so that report that is rumoured to maybe have been put out, but still not released to the public, etc., still hasn't been received by anyone. So it's not been submitted. Um, off the back of that, Ross Coulthard commented, and again, I'll quote, strange that the DOD, Arrow, finds the time to allow some tightly limited media cues questions on UAPs, but it still hasn't explained why a statutorily required UAP accountability report is now weeks overdue, and why a Congress that demanded it now, that, that demanded it now appears unconcerned. Uh, hashtag controlling the narrative. And do you know what? I think a lot of people would maybe echo Ross Coulthard's sentiments to kick off, Dan, that is Congress that for a while seemed really to have the bit between their teeth with this and really to be aggressively pursuing this, especially, you know, the representatives like Gallagher and such who were really on the ball in the congressional hearing where they almost attacked Moultrie and Bray at times. It appears on the public face of things of taking a step back and they just aren't pursuing this as aggressively as happened before. What What's your kind of view on this? Yeah, I, I don't think that's wrong at all. The The thing to remember here is the legislation that we've got coming in is uh, allows a lot more leverage in terms of demanding that report can be produced sooner rather than later. And so I feel like these officials were kind of treading water until this legislation passes, which, you know, it's passed the House, it's passed the Congress. Now it goes to the president's desk. I think it'll be signed around the 31st of December, like it was last year. But until that had passed, they don't really have any, you know, tactics and proper channels they can try on through. As soon as that passes, I bet we'll see them coming back again and, and kind of asking questions more publicly. A lot in the NDAA as well was changed by people like Gallagher and folk like that. So whilst they have been quiet, they have been working behind the scenes as well. So it's kind of, you know, swing, swings and roundabouts. I, I wish they were more vocal about it so that the media would talk about it more. But at the same time, now, once this NDAA passes, they, they have a bit more that they can strong arm the, the report out of the organizations with. So riffing off the top of my head here, like any good host would do, and that, this is me asking you this genuinely. I've not written this down and folks, Dan hasn't prepared an answer for this. So he might go, uh, but he'll probably know. Was it almost premature then to have that report have a deadline of the 31st of October? Was that almost an aesthetic thing that that deadline was there? Because it's not really meant anything, has it? I mean, you yourself, Dan, you had a lovely graphic and countdown to that date, didn't you? And yep. many others <laughs> were looking at it's going to be the 31st. Yeah, but it wasn't just just you. That I mean, you you done that because you counted down to a date that we all expected to have this report by. You then had other really well thought of journalists and others reporting that there may be October surprises, hinting at something big coming, which I never, and you, you saw as well, we never had any hint of anything because there wasn't anything either, was it? But no. It, it's, it, it really ultimately meant, yeah, I mean, there may have been something and nothing happened, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, there was never anything like, like you know, sinister in the background that we heard of. And it just seemed to be that it came and went. So the date really meant nothing. And there isn't any accountability. I just wondered, is there anything you think would be happening in the background that would maybe make sure this doesn't happen again? Or is it really going to be the case that the language put into this NDAA is like you say, is going to strengthen that in future, those deadlines actually mean something. 
the the deadline was in the NDA for last year, and if I remember correctly, it was directed at either the UAPTF or AOI MSG. So on a technicality, they can say, well, you know, that deadline wasn't for Arrow, therefore we didn't miss anything. Um, in the briefing, they were emphasizing that Arrow was a new organization and they were just kind of starting start to find their feet. So I, I think that they're kind of leaning on the side of, well, we just haven't had time to look at this properly. There were a few startling things in the briefing as well, but they were saying that Go for it. Um, Arrow were kind of look, re-looking at the data that UAPTF had and standardizing it. And I found that quite shocking, actually, because, you know, what the hell, quite frankly, have UAPTF and, and AIMSOC been doing if they haven't been kind of looking at the data or formatting it properly and making a, a decent database of UAP encounters? Um, it, it was surprising. I'm glad that it's happening, don't get me wrong, but... You know what? What have they been doing for the past two years? But I think this is the thing that we've not really known, and I also do understand, and not to sound like I'm, you know, sticking up for them or making excuses. But we've discussed before, haven't we, that it's not been plain sailing. It's not as if uh, a large team of people have been set up. They've had a lot of really a lot of funding. They've not had a lot of time, and there's been a lot of coming and going, hasn't there as well? Um, even just politically. There always seems to have been something else has come up. And while that may have been their jobs, we don't even know that most of the folks who have been aligned to this at any one time have been working solely on this either. So, you know, for example, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, does he have other duties outside of this role at the moment? But even then, he's going to other people for information that might be caught up in all sorts of other things. And while we want the UFO subject to be forefront of everyone's mind, there's been the pandemic, there's been the war in Ukraine, there's been, you know, Chinese spying, all that kind of stuff that goes on. And it just no doubt takes a massive step onto the back burner, frustratingly, doesn't it? And all of that combined with red tape, bureaucracy, and just obfuscation that we know goes on, makes it really, really hard to get these things going without there being a consistent time period, a consistent department, consistency of people working on that to make sure the work's actually getting done and even the consistency of a mandate to make sure it's being taken seriously. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, a, a lot of this is kind of innocuous, just red tape, like you say. But hopefully going forward now, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick will, will start having those reports ready on the October dates and things like that because dates are specified in this new NDAA. And that, that briefing to me, you know, they didn't do that briefing with UAPTF or AIMSOG. So it's kind of starting off on the right foot as, as much as there was some, you, you know, kind of brotherly nudging from Moultrie uh, to, to Sean when he was kind of saying certain things. Uh, for example, Chris Sharp asked about anomalous movements being recorded. And Sean Kirkpatrick just straight up said, yes, yes, we have cases of that. At which point Moultrie jumped in and said, oh, yeah, but Sean, you know, let's emphasize that these are center errors and some other things and blah, blah, blah. And it just felt a bit to me like, uh, you know, strong arm in the direction, you know, when you get in trouble with your parents and your big, uh, bigger older sibling is like, no, stick to this story. Don't, don't tell them the real thing. Um, it felt a little uh, bit like see, that. On that, that, that was one that stood out to me because I would also find it fascinating or troubling that the nation with the biggest defense budget on the planet, you know, trillions of dollars, has these fantastic sensor systems that they keep classified so tightly that they're getting pretty basic errors, it sounds like, showing really strange and wonderful things when, 
are these things not tracking missiles coming into the country, tracking devices spying on the country, you know, tracking space debris, satellites, you know, surely we hear about how wonderful that they can track a baseball from space, you know, and take a picture of it in a two foot by two foot box. Yet he seemed to almost throw it out there as if, yeah, but it was almost commenting how glitchy their own technology is, which I just just don't buy that at all. Yeah, you you can understand if it was under testing, you you know, when we're talking about those early encounters where they were seeing things and, and... You know, Kevin Day says, actually, you know, I reset my system. I troubleshooted the system to check that it wasn't there. And these these uh, readings kept showing up. I, I don't buy that the, the sensors are, are messing up now. You know, that we're in, you know, probably the eighth, ninth, tenth generation of these sensors. Fair enough. You, you know, I always like to think of these things like the iPhone. Um, if it was iPhone 1, you'd expect bugs. But iPhone 10, there are a lot less bugs there. So if they're still encountering these things and they're still seeing them up there in the sky with these sensors, I would say that it's likely not sensor error that they, as we like to say, there's a there there, which would explain what why you know this NDAA is happening, why there's congressional interest. Fact is, they've lost security of their skies, and that that's a big issue. What else stood out for you? So there were a few things. Uh, at one point, they were talking about bringing in outside expertise to help design and deploy detect and track capabilities, uh, by which they meant that they were going to kind of recalibrate sensors um, to match. And this was the word that they, the term that they use, patterns of life and signature characterization development. Now, that could just mean that, you know, a whale gives off an electromagnetic signal, therefore they know to identify a whale. But patterns of life is, is certainly a, a provocative phrase there. I think, you know, they, they could have said anything else. Uh, so yeah, sensors are being made that will specifically track UAP signatures. And they differentiated from drones when they said that. So, you know, let's put the drone conversation aside because there's clearly something else here. They also emphasize and just on that, just regarding sure. the detecting UAP signatures, in a couple of minutes, we're going to touch on an article by the debriefs Chris Plain, um, which will be in the description yes. for the show as well, which touches on something like that, which uh, an independent think tank has put a paper forward for. So that will tie in quite nicely. But yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, they, they emphasize the reports is coming soon, that there will be hundreds and hundreds more sightings and, and you know, reports since that May hearing as well. They emphasize that they're setting up really clear mechanisms to identify blue on blue, which basically means friendly uh, kind of planes flying around. These systems exist. So as soon as a pilot reports something, they can identify probably within an hour or so that whether it belongs to the US and it's black technology or whether it's someone else or something else. As well as that, we had Julian Barnes mentioning space aliens again, which everyone rolled their eyes at. Just because even if you see something in the sky that does a 90 degree turn, all we can say is that that was something in the sky that did a 90 degree turn. Without seeing the occupants and where it comes from and where it's going, we can't say that it's an ET. It's really hard to do that. I understand the argument that uh, you know we, we can derive a lot of information from those kind of movements. But fact is, all it says is there's a craft that can do 90 degree turns. So... It was frustrating to hear Julian talk about space aliens because I think it's up to it's up to science to come up with the fingerprints that will say that's ET or that's life from elsewhere. Interestingly, do you think 
he's still being disparaging because on the show, there, there were listeners as well who mentioned that he specifies space aliens because in terms of immigration, they would use the term alien to talk about someone from another country coming in, crossing a border that they shouldn't, like illegal uh, illegal alien, illegal immigration, that sort of thing. And sure. people have mentioned that that's why he specifies space aliens so often. I took it, I think like yourself though, that he's being more derogatory to where, towards, you know, haha, space aliens, you know, how ridiculous is this term to even have to say it? Um, but do, do you get that, the feeling he's still point. using it in a disparaging way? Yeah, I think it's being disparaging. And even even if he meant alien in that way, that's still kind of gross. You, you know, when, when we hear about those stories, people coming across the channel and kind of searching out for, for a better life because they're seeking asylum, because genuinely their lives are under threat back home. So kind of keep calling those people aliens and kind of it paints them as something other. And it also kind of moves the conversation on to you know, if we are being visited by something else, there's an immigration conversation to have. And, and I, I know at some point that conversation... Very District 9. Now. Yes, District very 9 District covers 9. that very well, yep. It does. And, and it just puts a kind of tone onto the conversation that I don't think we need right now. Just on that, if anyone over the Christmas period is looking for some watching for a movie and they haven't seen it, District 9 is a, a UFO movie with... Imagine Independence Day... But instead of an invasion, it's an immigration issue. And it is very, very well done. I'm a big fan of that film. And I think we are going to see a sequel to it many, many years later. Uh, so they're still meant to be coming out with that, Probably. I believe. They, this is all, all good sci-fi kind of just hangs the alien stuff on, you know, a framework that we get to discuss today and kind of extrapolate out. And District 9 does that really, really well. Uh, just... One of the last things just to mention from the briefing is they spoke about the threat kind of narrative, um, as well as them going back through holdings. And by holdings, they mean documents, essentially, of interviews and things like that that they have, um, just to kind of see if there were any programs before the DOD was the DOD. Uh, that's very encouraging to hear. It sounds like there's a lot to look through, and it sounds like they've got their work cut out for them. Uh, just looking through that without kind of saying, oh, this person said something interesting, maybe we should get them in for a new interview. So they, they've got the workout for them. I'm feeling good after that briefing about it, but I can't help but feeling that that briefing was to kind of calm the crowds that are, that are baying for that report at the door, you know? I'm going to be completely honest and admit that I do love a bit of cool technology, but not all the best tech is classified. So when Blendjet got in touch about their new Blendjet 2.0, I was very excited to try it out, especially as one of those protein shake people that many folks hate. Just shaking never has the same results as a blender does, let's be fair. Blend Jet 2 is portable so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blend Jet 2 is whisper quiet so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house, a big one for me folks, and it lasts for 15 or more blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, Blend Jet 2 cleans itself, just blend with water water, a drop of soap and you're good to go. With over 30 colours available there is something for everyone. Personally I'm a huge fan of the carbon fibre. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today and be sure to use the promo 
code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power and innovation of the Blended Jet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Go to BlendJet.com and use the code THATUFO12 to get 12% off, remember folks, and that free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. On that, when we see some of these things talk about, you know, looking back, looking at reports going back to the 40s, incidents, cases, events, potential evidence, how much progress are we going to get to move this forward? Looking back, and I don't mean weeks and months, but going back years and years, do you think a lot of this, because that also includes looking back to see, you know, organizations or small departments that may have been active in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, for all we know, there was something else during ATIP's time in a completely different part, you know, maybe in the Air Force or something that no one knew about, that was never talked about, that we still haven't heard of, because that that could happen, you know, in 20 years time, we, we find that out or something. And I just wonder, is the progress here going to be made by pushing forward and investigating? Or do you think there's still still benefit and merit in going back? I, I think there's benefit and merit going back and clearing up as much as we can, to be honest. That we, I was having a conversation about Roswell uh, with someone the other day. We were saying it's good, it's really hard to prove. It was because Abby Loeb kind of disparaged the idea of Roswell and what happened. And there was a discussion around that. And we were just saying it's really difficult to prove what happened. So much time has passed, so much records have kind of gone awry. You know, we didn't have digital databases like we did now uh, back then. So going back and definitively being able to say, okay, there was something weird about Roswell internally uh, will be beneficial. However, like you said, you can't help but wonder if there's something else going on in the background and John Greenwald uh, of the Black Ball actually got some reports via FOIA that mentioned a STRATCOM organization uh, known as... So basically all along, Lou, Lou has always said that there was something else going on before ORSAP and besides ATIP and that something happened between ATIP and the UAPTF. There were a number of years there where it looked like it was blank, but actually it appears mentioned by high-ranking officials in several documents that something called the Joint in a Joint Interagency Task Force, J-I-A-T-F, um, was actually looking at UAP whilst uh, all this was going on. We don't know much about them. The Pentagon said that it was an error that that wording was put on paper. I don't believe them. Uh, we, we were told something else existed. We've now seen something else existed. So I feel like Arrow is almost a public face, kind, kind of like a blue book to a condom report, you know, uh, the, the real meat is being looked at elsewhere. And I hope that as we go down the line, they can be a bit more transparent about that because they said the word transparency a lot during that briefing. And quite frankly, there's work to do there for them. And I think even if nothing else, looking back on some of these organizations that pop up just gives more credence to the idea of the fact that there is something here worth investigating. There is a there there, as the common phrase is at the minute, and that it's very much worth kind of plugging forward with any efforts, isn't it? So, yeah, so the, the NDAA uh, is passed. It's going to be signed into law, and the UAP language is, I think, going to take up a, a large part of what gets talked about in 2023 and uh, going forward, hopefully, as well, and, and show some real progress within the UFO topic at a political level. Fair to say? 
Yeah, absolutely. And just before we move on, I'll just I've got a few bullet points to just recap the NDAA for people that might not know Go what's for it. in it. Uh, basically, the language elevates the UFO office arrow, um, saying that its leaders will report directly to the Deputy Secretary of Defense and the Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence. So they're kind of leapfrogging the DOD, but still including them. A secure system will be set up for anyone who used to work for or now works in a UAP-related secure or special access program that includes contractors. So people like Bob Lazar, this is their moment to come forward and start using this system. There, once information is received into that system, Arrow has 72 hours to notify Congress and all the committees who are interested. So there's a ticking time bomb on this as well now. Those submitting information will be protected from recourse and can even take legal action against anyone who takes action against them for submitting the information. The scope of Arrow grows and it includes setting up a UAP response team and a science team which will work to exploit UFO materials and capabilities, whether they're just reports of crash retrievals, they're going to be working on technology to replicate stuff. We also have Arrow will be conducting a review of all the US governments and intelligence communities involvement with UAP since 1945. That historical record we should see around September 2023, but you know what they're like with deadlines. The UAP office will run till 2026, 2027. And the acronym of UAP has changed from unidentified aerial phenomena to unidentified anomalous phenomena. The definition of it remains the same, but Moultrie did say that it kind of widens the net a bit so that instead of talking about just aerial phenomena, they can now talk about submerged and uh, space-bound objects, I guess. Uh, so it opens up a little bit. So a really good step forward. We won't really hear about those whistleblowers, and I'm kind of doing that in bunny ears because the, the term has a specific meaning and it might not fit here uh, publicly unless congressional officials deem it so. But we do public reports every single year, so hopefully the momentum just builds from here. I would ask you one more thing then. Based on that, if you could get one reasonably sensitive but not pushing it question answered at one of these things, because you see a lot of debate on how good the quality of questions that were actually asked were, and it's debatable. Um, each is going to have their own opinion. What would you ask? I, I would probably want to drill down on something because they keep saying we don't have anything off planet, we don't have anything external, we don't blah, blah, blah. We know Congress has been briefed by certain people who have alluded to craft not made by human hands. I think I would ask something around there just to kind of drill down on the detail there instead of letting them get away with saying, no, it's not ET, uh, you know, emphasize, well, I'm not saying it's ET, I'm saying that there's something there, let's open up. So for example, they, they said, uh, we don't have any material that's from an unknown source. I would want to ask, okay, so what material do you have from a known source and what was the source? It, like all the kind okay. of language games play with things, to, to, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think I would be asking, because I think this would really narrow down on the idea of it being Chinese, Russian, US, regarding the space-bound objects, um, kind of two-part or one, how far out are you tracking these objects coming from? And also when you're tracking them leaving, how far out can you track them? And I just wonder, you know, because if it's China and Russia, I get these things might be in orbit still, you know, their own drones and satellites, but if these things are then flying off into the vastness of space, you know, that starts to eliminate possibilities. So I would like to know that, you know, the actual tracking of it, how far these things are found coming in from and how far they go out. 
do they get to a point where I think I asked Lou a similar question on one of the Lou interviews, Lou Elizondo, and uh, he couldn't really answer. And I think that's something I would love to know. Like, if you're tracking these things going out, do you have a limitation as to how far you can track them? We know they get tracked underwater, and people say, well, at the speed of sound, they're faster. That's because of the limitations of the equipment we use can only track things at a certain speed. Something could be going 50,000 miles an hour underwater, but the the radar or sonar used to track it only tracks up to 2,000 miles an hour. So, you know, you wouldn't actually know the true speed of it. Uh, potentially so yeah i would love to know something around the space space bound stuff that interests me you you could push that as well if you got foot some follow-ups because like we know for example to go back to kevin day he said i think it was eighty thousand feet that that radar went up to when they saw them coming from that sea lake 80 yeah yeah eighty thousand. Yeah. um i i wonder how far someone like lou could go in terms of you know the the height that they tracked at uh, before it becomes a conversation about space. And he goes, nope, we can't talk about space. That's classified. You, you know, we, we can kind of really push up to that line to kind of go, are they pretending they're from space? Or is it coming from high enough that you're convinced that it's from deep space, you know? Absolutely. Because no doubt you'll get proper, I, mean, I don't know, do you get height geeks? You know, where you get the ionosphere, <laughs> atmosphere, the is it aerosphere, and there's all those different layers of the sphere yeah, sure. before you go into orbit and space. And I'm sure there would be, well, we've got technology for this level, but then we've got technology for this level, but then we have technology for the orbit. And then, yeah, but that's orbit. What about further afield? Can you get to the moon? Can you go past the moon? Do you have to? So that, I think, for me, would eliminate a lot of questions. If you could find out that, I mean, if you want to get really weird with it, but, you know, well, we get these things coming from as far as Mars, for example, not to say they're coming from there but that that eliminates you know we've got russian drones coming from mars because you don't yeah. well they yeah, might exactly. i don't know that, 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 there's still that possibility <laughs> um but listen let's the get on to uh, yeah the, the red planet very good i like that yeah <laughs> very good um a couple of debrief articles that are definitely worth uh, touching on um i'll put the links for all of them in the description but we mentioned earlier the ways to detect spacecraft being looked at or ways to detect detect UAP was the language in the NDAA and Moultrie and, and co were talking about. Um, the Christopher Plain over at The Debrief, who's been on the podcast before, always worth listening to and reading his stuff, talks about recently the, I've got the wrong article up there, I've got the wrong article up there, there we go. There's three I just want to touch on. One of them from Chris Plain is headlined, Physics Think Tank Proposes Method for Detecting Extraterrestrial Spacecraft Using Gravitational Waves. Um, and the first part is basically an international team of scientists has written a paper outlining how humanity could detect ET spacecraft using gravitational waves. It was a think tank called Applied Physics, which has over 30 member scientists from around the globe, basically talking about how looking at gravitational waves within the Milky Way galaxy, we could find that these ripples and work out whether they were caused by some kind of craft moving through. And I just wonder, do you think that would be useful for even potentially searching a bit closer to home? Thinking of whenever people, myself or others, speak to Avi Loeb, he he talks about using telescopes and different equipment to potentially look at these things. Are gravitational waves something that we could use in our own orbit, in our own atmosphere, to detect if a craft has been there? Thinking of the Tic Tac, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the stuff that we have now, it, it's very kind of specific band of gravitational waves. You know, these things are very, very hard to detect, uh, which is why, you know, turn the clock back 15 years, it was a sci-fi concept that no one believed in. Then we detected the first one. It would be a really clever way, I think, to, to track things using gravitational-based propulsion, but also uh, I, I read 
uh, I finished the second book in the three-party problem series, um, or it's called the Remembrance of Earth's Past series, but I wish they would just change the name because we all call it the three-party problem series anyway. Um, but yeah, in the second book, they actually, they, they build a gravitational uh, wave transmitter. And the whole idea being that it takes such a level of advancement to do that, that anyone that you could potentially find to communicate that could read it would be at a specific level of, of advancement as well. Therefore, you could expect to have a decent conversation with another form of life out there if you could do so through gravitational waves. It would be really interesting if, if that's what we found. <clears throat> and we've got ahead of us something called Lisa as well, which is at the moment the, the detector we have, LIGO is, is fairly big and it's Earth-based. Uh, so it can only pick up things of, of a certain frequency. However, we're building one that is a constellation of satellites in space around Earth that will orbit Earth and they will be able to pick up even more subtle kind of gravitational wave signals. So like you say, we might set that up and go, hold on, something's making a gravitational wave signal on Earth. That's weird. Let's see what that is. And we might find that it's, you know, a UAP, UFO, something like that. It would have been awesome to have a gravitational wave detector just near the Nimitz, just to see if that's what it was giving off, because you would expect, you know, a black hole going supernova, or sorry, something going supernova way, way away, and producing a gravitational wave. The reason we can detect it is because it's so powerful. But everything creates gravitational waves. You know, we do as we move. It's just that they're so much less uh, intense than the ones we've been detected. So eventually we'll be able to detect things that are real subtle. Uh, and yeah, I, I think once we get there, if anything is using propulsion, it will be a, a real kind of nice, simple sensor to, to pick something like that up. Chris Plain has another article uh, that was um, December 16th. We record this on Sunday the 18th. Um, and it was the case for alien life elevated by the exciting first ever confirmation of two exoplanet water worlds. And this was the University of Montreal. Researchers have confirmed two exoplanets, uh, twins, about 1.9 times the size of Earth. Potentially, um, they've been categorized as water worlds, um, but the James Webb Telescope will be focused on these, and that won't be confirmed until sometime next year. And again, that link will be in there for folks to go and have a look at. I always find this stuff really interesting. For you, Dan, when you see us looking at US Congress and government talking about trying to detect UAP, even though they're not necessarily looking for alien craft, they're just trying to find work out what these are, um, and that does include foreign adversarial technology. I wonder when you see articles like that on the debrief, do you think we're going to get that looking further afield to other planets being our first confirmation of other life, or do you think we're going to still potentially get it closer to home? I, I kind of see that it comes at the same time. All these things are feeding each other. Uh, you, you know, I think it was, I want to say like five to 10 years ago, we thought there were no exoplanets. Uh, there was even a point where we thought there weren't even meteors, but everything's kind of caught up now. And I think the most recent count of exoplanets were 5,227 uh, with 9,000 more candidates to look at. So the more we look, the more planets we're finding that could support life, whilst we're kind of coming to terms with the idea that something else may be here visiting us. All these things are going to just build this bigger puzzle picture, or this bigger picture, I guess, um, of just us not being alone and it being a foregone conclusion, I think. 
and again, just to top that one off, uh, Micah Hanks, uh, again from the debrief, wonderful article titled Signals of Interest, Turn Up in SETI Search Aided by Citizen Scientists. Um, and it's very they're very quick to mention within the article uh, the quotes that there are, again, looking out into the universe for ET signatures from other planets, other civilizations that may have been broadcast, that two uh, signals picked up are signals of interest. And while they're very quick to dismiss they are not saying these are alien in uh, their origin. Being able to identify quickly what these signals may be can help them in future identify other signals that could be ET in origin. So again, SETI still having a role to play. I know some folks are maybe frustrated, especially at people like Seth Shostak and his flip-flopping on the alien UFO and why he may have an agenda as to why we should keep looking yeah, I- further afield. I like that you say flip-flopping. I, I always imagine him doing that kind of magic harp splash. Flip-flopping is a much, uh, much nicer 100%. way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, uh, magic harp being in the news, obviously, with Pokemon's 25th anniversary. <laughs> and congratulations to Ash Ketchum finally becoming a grandmaster for any Pokemon fans out there. Congrats, uh, Ash. A strange yeah. twist. Yeah, well done. Um, so, yeah, that, again, I think ties in nicely with those three articles in general from the debrief. Uh if you look at this this topic from a slightly, you know, standing back a little bit from a scientific point of view, there's a lot going on, a very interesting time period. Our technology is getting better. And I think there's a lot to to maybe get the scientific community again more and more involved to look and go, actually, there's a lot happening here. And that, that might actually move us nicely into another article that's featured on the debrief, but was a larger story that the debrief just happened to cover. And that was the fusion breakthrough, Dan. Um, so there was an energy announcement from the Department of Energy. And essentially, I'm going to break this down in layman's terms. They used lots of lasers, 192, to make more energy than was put in in the first place. So the idea being that you can use a tiny bit of energy and make lots of energy. So could you, in theory, power things without needing batteries, coal? Because a lot of our stuff, like launching rockets, for example, is an easy way to explain to an idiot like me, well, we can put this rocket into space, but we need a massive explosion underneath it first to even start to push it into the air. And then we have to burn tons and millions of tons of fuel to keep it going and to get it into space. Whereas that involves a lot of fuel, fossil fuel, burning things, and it's pretty pretty old school in terms of energy creation. And us, with an interest in the UFO topic, we hear about these fantastic craft and how they can literally make energy almost out of nothing or in a much cleaner and safer way than we can. So I know you, though, Dan, had a slightly, not negative, but more pessimistic take on this announcement, but also that <laughs> you're, you're po- more positive for the future. Does that make sense? And I'll let you explain it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the idea was that people were complaining that the amount of energy that went into uh, the, it's the National Ignition Facility uh, to conduct this experiment was a lot more than they got out. Therefore, they didn't get out more than they put in. But since kind of reading all that stuff, you know, I've done a bunch of research and, and kind of looked around. And actually, we, we have to separate the facility from the experiment. The amount of energy put into the experiment with lasers that were less than 1% efficient still produced more energy than they put into it. Now, the the National Ignition uh, Facility was actually using lasers that are like 20 to 30 years old. So the efficiency sucks. So if we were to do this very same experiment with modern lasers that were, you know, we can get up to like 10, 20% efficient now, 
we would have exponentially more energy coming out of it. So it's still a proof of concept. I think I said to you, it's kind of like we, we figured out how to build the iPhone battery, but we haven't figured out the rest of the iPhone yet. Obviously, the battery for the iPhone is a really, really, really important part of that kind of device. So it's incredible that we've, that we've been able to make that. What I find interesting is, so there are two types of fusion. One is the one we saw this week. So go on. And that's, is that nuclear fission and nuclear fusion? Uh, so basically two techniques of getting fusion. Okay. So one, one of them uh, is what we've seen this week, where you drop a little pallet into a bunch of lasers and they fire at it. Um, and the reaction creates plasma. The energy that we get comes from that plasma. The other one is that, again, you kind of have a stream of hydrogen under compression in a magnetic chamber that's a kind of a donut shape. And that actually don't need to, to shoot pallets once you start that process. That's a process that keeps giving energy. So people think that that magnetic, uh, I forget the magnetic confinement, that's what it's called, uh, is a lot more promising, but it actually, all of these things feed into one of these techniques actually becoming an industry within a couple of decades. So no matter what we're looking at, we're looking at plasma giving us a lot more energy than we've previously had. And we're talking exponentially more as well. So like you say, we could start powering spaceships with them. We could start powering all sorts of things with them. There's so much science out there that we don't do because we don't have the energy requirements for it. This kind of stuff would help us get there. So whilst, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to take what they did this week and kind of go, oh yeah, we can within a few years, build a power plant out of it. There are a number of problems with that. They need to scale it, um, drop in that, that pallet into the lasers as well. They need to be able to do that multiple times per second. Uh, at the moment, they're doing it once a week. So it's rather slow compared to where we need to be. But I would say that this week they achieved ignition. It's a big, big deal. They got more energy than they put in. Therefore, I would say 40, 50 years, and we'll probably see an industry built around this technology. Something that I looked at was, again, I was like, oh, nuclear fusion, but we've got nuclear fission. So nuclear fission is, if I'm correct, us breaking down atoms to create electricity. So we destroy to create. And then you've got nuclear fusion, which is combining to create energy, which seems, I think, was a nice little look at, I mean, us as a species, where we seek to destroy to progress rather than combine <laughs> to grow. And I thought you would appreciate that one. Yes, um, very so, much yeah. so. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah th thinking more advanced civilizations tend to harness what they've got a lot better than we do and it, it gives them a bigger yield an outcome an output and as a society we destroy lots of stuff and that helps us progress whether you look at you know energy creation whether you look at war what russia is trying to do at the minute you know let's destroy lots of stuff so we can progress or they you know so yeah i, I thought that was interesting just looking at the difference between fission and fusion and like you say, I'm sure there will be many, given the interest in the UFO topic, looking, thinking, well, they or the governments or some departments within, especially DOE, have the knowledge of how we can create this energy anyway without us having to go through all this. But without that kind of big reveal, then it's going to be that slow drip feed, I think, in terms of new energies as well. Interesting, this comes at a time when Russia have a monopoly on gas and, and everything and, and that type of fuel that... yeah you know, the US and maybe other countries start to come out and say, oh, look, we can maybe start to create some of our own unique types of energy. And it probably looks at that scenario down the line where you have super nations 
holding back their facilities and utilities to threaten other nations as well. So sad that's yeah, where uh, things absolutely. are at. But from a scientific point of view, quite an exciting development. It's interesting as well that once again, it's nature. You know, these are processes that take place in stars. So once again, it's us copying nature, us being shown by nature what to do and then figuring it out, which is essentially, you know, when you look at stuff like fiber optics, there are things at the bottom of the sea that have massively more efficient fiber optics than we do. And they just use it to show colors, to warn Mm -hmm. off enemies and things like that. So nature inspires inspires us in a lot of ways. And it, it's not lost on me that this is, you know, I talk about plasma a lot and the possibility of intelligent plasma and plasma being kind of a key to the UFO technologies. And here we are looking at plasma. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's something in this, man. I can feel it in my bones. <laughs> well, on that note, have you got anything else to add, Dan? Because I'm going to finish with a quote for this one. Oh, sure. Just, just I wanted to touch on the fact that um, Obama's production company are adapting the story of Betty and Barney Hill um a lot of people have been talking about this because obama you know he came out on the james corden show and in a few other places and he's spoken about ufos very seriously very frankly you know that that takes has a lot of weight for people and yeah so they're going to be adapting uh higher ground production it's called they're going to be adapting the betty and barney hill story um which was just in the 1960s basically one of the first kind of most famous abduction cases uh we a lot of speculation has been happening as to why obama is doing it and you know, what kind of saying, well, you know, the briefing happened and it's getting reported the day after that they're making this thing. We actually had someone on our Discord kind of say that they've read the script and they were saying it leans less against their abduction story and more on the kitchen sink elements of the drama given Betty and Barney were a mixed race marriage at a time when that was very dangerous. The script is ultimately a speculation on the isolating impacts of both ordinary and extraordinary. But as such, that person wouldn't place too much emphasis on Obama's involvement. I thought that was a really cool statement to be able to add. I like it. Well, Dan, uh, thank you for your time. And we may have another pod before the end of the year with a bit of a recap. Not too sure timing-wise how that will work out yet. If not, it'll be very early in the new year. Uh, However, I'd like to uh, finish off with a quote from the late comedian Bill Hicks. It would have been his 55th birthday a few days ago. And I thought this one was apt. Today, a young man on acid. Yeah, yeah, Bill was good. Way ahead of his time. Uh, Today, a young man on acid realized that all matter is merely energy condensed to a slow vibration, that we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. There's no such thing as death. Life is only a dream, and we we are the imagination of ourselves. Here's Tom with the weather. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Hi everyone, if you listen to the podcast on an Apple device, you can support directly by going on to Apple Podcasts and clicking the subscribe button, and for less than the price of a coffee per month, you can get 
early access to episodes, episodes in full, and no adverts or sponsorships like this one you're hearing now. It also supports directly to me at the podcast, so thank you very much. Also, don't forget to go and leave the podcast on Apple a five-star review and make sure you click the follow button too. Thanks.